everybody. This is Shane Douglas Keen. Uh, you are listening to Ink Heist, and I am here with Rich Duncan and Laurel Hightower. And tonight we're talking, I say tonight, this thing always airs in the daytime. Um, tonight we're talking to Paul Michael Anderson. Uh, he is the author of the collection Bones Are Made to Be Br- Broken which is a fucking great collection. Go read my review on Horror DNA. Um, sorry, a little self-plug. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, Standalone, the new, the new one from Perpetual Motion Machine Publishing that we'll be focusing on a lot tonight. Um, so, now that I've gotten through that awkward fucking introduction... Um, Thanks for being here, Paul. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Thank, it, it's it's really nice to find me on this because I follow all I follow you guys. Laurel, you're a new one, but I follow you as well, and I I, I like the what I've been hearing like the Jess McHugh podcast was pretty good. Um, so I'm I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, um, yeah, we we're happy to have you here. Um. I was going to say, usually when we first start out, we go through this little new prisoner on the cell block thing and uh, ask you to do a little bit of an introduction to yourself. Okay. So that's what I'm doing right now. Uh, I was like, a new guy on the cell block. I'm like, I didn't make a shiv. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm fucked. Uh, Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Michael Anderson as... Shane has illustriously said, I am the author of the collection Boats Made to Be Broken, which Shane was a big cheerleader on when it came out, and I was very appreciative of that. Um, I'm also the author of the novella How We Broke, which I wrote with Bracken McLean, <laughs> Bracken McLeod. Um, I'm tired. And the new book, Standalone. And I'm not done t- tired talking about that yet. Give it about a month, and I'm going to be like, why am I still talking about Standalone? I'm fucking tired of the shits. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But for but for now, it's still a lot to talk about. It it, it is, and it, it's fun to talk about because it leads to a lot of weird conversations. I ended up, I was, this is kind of my press blitz, but it's always nice when I get to sit down with people I know because like, uh, or even if it's through social media, because then you can have natural conversations. And I was on a podcast recently, and it was a great podcast. I had a great conversation with the dude, but I didn't know him that well. And we ended up in this, like, 30-minute conversation about tabletop gaming, which I don't do. Um, and not not to knock it at all, but I felt so, like, I felt like a toddler that was thrown in the 10-foot part of the pool. I was like, I'm going to drown here. What's critical role? <laughs> do you know now? I mean, did you like uh, vaguely? I, I think it's I, apparently it's like a podcast. It has nothing to do with our production. I'm not sure. My like, you know, in you know, in fandom, all these fandoms kind of overlap. So you end up talking to people you wouldn't necessarily expect to talk to. Like I kind of expected at some point, maybe people you guys would be interested in talking to me, and I would be like, Yay, Shane and Laurel and Rich, yay! Um, but. And sometimes you go in different directions. And I was on this tabletop podcast because they talked to a lot of writers. And it was a good conversation. I had a great time. But I was like, I have to be honest. The only tabletop I know of is when other people talk about it and my brother in the 80s playing D&D. Like, that's it. I barely play Xbox, you know. 
But then here we are, and we get to have this nice conversation because, again, I know you folks. And it's like, oh, okay. Yeah, it's more comfortable. At least for for me, when we have guests on that are not normal, because you're far from that. um, (laughs) (laughs) When we have guests on that we're more familiar with, you know, personally, it's it's a lot smoother for me. I get really fucking anxious otherwise. It's less first date like, you know. Yes. Yeah. Well, you see yourself in five years, fucking dead. Um, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Why is that a question? (laughs) That's always my answer. Like, and I've gotten that. Like, I've gotten it. I'm a teacher in my day job, and I've gotten it. Like, where you see yourself in five years, and I can't say it there. But my my immediate answer is dead. Yeah. <laughs> I come from the punk scene in the '90s. I didn't expect to see 30, let alone 30 fucking uh, six going on 37. Uh, that was me too. Same deal. I, I expected 33 was my fucking destiny. <laughs> I mean, Go do ahead. you guys have wills? Like, is this just a thing? <laughs> I feel like you faced your mortality really early. I'm concerned, but I have a story about that. Actually, I've been I've been noodling having a will for a while, you know, just because I have a child now. You know, my wife and I have discussed what would happen if, like, we died in a fire car accident and shit like that. But I don't have a will, and I, I pardon me, I pardon me for since my daughter was born. My daughter was born when um, I was turning, I was 27, turning 28. I'm like, I really need to get on that. And my wife would look at me like, are are, are you high? And I'm like, no, not for 15 years. Um, <laughs> But no, I've been aware of my mortality since I was seven. I used to, my mom used to watch MASH, and there was an episode where Hawkeye um, was treating a patient, and the patient passed away. He got connected to the patient, and it was at that moment that I realized I was gonna fucking die. And that is not something a seven-year-old wants to be aware of. I keep waiting for it to kind of hit my kid, and she's buried a ton of fucking animals because again, I have a circus in my house. Um, and it still hasn't quite – I haven't – she hasn't freaked out. If she's accepted her own mortality, she's done it way better than I could have. Well, thank – yeah. How old is she? She is nine. She turned nine in June. She's nine. Okay, yeah, so. Um, wow. But because we have a ton of pets, and, and a lot of them are rescues, a lot of them come from really bad environments, like, she's dealt with a lot of death. In the yeah. nine years she's been alive, she's lost a turtle, a hamster – a fish. Um, we've lost one, two, three cats, and two dogs. Wow. Uh, we uh, like one of the dogs was a dog. Uh, he passed away in, in um, September. He was a rescue. We adopted when he was twelve. We got him out of a really bad environment, and I latched onto that dog, and that dog latched onto me. So, and there and. You know, one of the cats used to sleep in her crib and stuff like that. But, again, with rescues, you kind of have to – it's a roll of the dice of their health. Yeah. Um, But she's had to deal with that all – and I I didn't have my own pet until I was – I moved in with my wife. At the time, she was my girlfriend. I never even had a pet. And so at seven, I freaked out. But she's been around – death. she, She has her own little pet cemetery around our house, and it's like, nope. She's completely fine. I'm like, you're you got more balls than I do at this age. <laughs> no kidding. 
even at my age, even at 55, I don't accept it quite that uh, stoically. <laughs> All right. All right. Sorry, Laurel. No, I was I was actually just pondering this because I used to have a huge crush on Alan Alda. So I was like, you know, was if there was a connection there with like if Hawkeye couldn't save you, you know, then no one could. But I don't know. That's that is an early age to come across that uh, that mortality. So that's a hell of a fucking analogy. Too. <laughs> um, it was funny because my mom doesn't remember it. I was I was raised by a single mom and we lived in the city. Um, if Shane, okay, Bones Made to Be Broken, the title novella, that apartment yeah. the main character lives in, that was my apartment. That neighborhood was my neighborhood. Oh wow! Um, that bus stop was my bus stop. Now my mom didn't have a nervous breakdown. She didn't jump. She didn't die. But um, uh, I pulled a lot of my childhood from that. And so when I became aware, when I, that moment, it was in the living room of that apartment. And if you, if I described it well enough in the story, the bathroom was right off the living room. And my mm-hmm. mom was like getting ready for bed or something like that. It was, it was a, a weeknight and I just lost my fucking shit. You know, she had the door closed cause she was getting, and she, she comes out like, what happened? She thought like I had stabbed myself or something. And no, it was because Hawkeye couldn't save a patient on fucking MASH. Um, <laughs> and, she, and I mentioned this to her a few years back. I forget what the content of the conversation was, and she had no memory of it. And I was like, dude, that is that is one of my most vivid memories. <laughs> I'm, I'm a, I don't know. Okay, so like the, for some reason, this is just really striking a chord with me because I like my my dad used to just love to ponder these like end of world scenarios a lot out loud in front of us when we were really small. Oh no. And and like, I don't know why or why no one ever thought to (laughs) say anything about like, your dad's kind of full of shit, Laurel. So you just don't have to worry about it. But for some reason, (laughs) one that he talked about with my brother about like an asteroid hitting in 2010 from the age of probably, I'm going to say eight to probably 16 or 17. I believe the world was going to end when I was 28 years old. Oh, damn. And, like, I legit was pondering, like, is college worth it? I mean, I believe in education, but, you know, I feel like it would be a waste of my time to a certain extent. But part of the reason it's so weird is because at no time did I go to my mom and say, like, holy shit, I mean, we're going to die, to give her an opportunity to be like, no, no, Laurel. Like, for some reason, I just suffered in silence. Like, I just bore the weight. Yeah, I was just like, well. This is rough, man. I, I had plans. I had dreams. I'm, you know, I'm yeah. fucked. 28, you know? Hell of a thing to do to a kid. <laughs> yeah. You know, in a weird sense, I do know what you're talking about, though. Although I didn't have a dad that pontificated post apocalypse, because um, <laughs> uh, my dad wasn't really present in my life and still isn't. Um, but Terminator 2 came out in 1991. I was born in 83, so I was about seven. Seven going on eight when it came out. And you remember the dream Sarah Connor has where she, the bomb hits L.A. Oh, and yeah. she's like, on, like oh, yeah. that stayed with me. And I used to be like, all right, we're all going to die in a nuclear annihilation when I'm 14. Um, yes. <laughs> right. All right, then. But I never I never thought of it in the sense of like, well, I guess I shouldn't try in school or go to college or anything. <laughs> it was just something I'm like, all right, I'm going to have to deal with this. <laughs> but first I have algebra. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
you know that a Paul over everything. <laughs> yeah. What was that? I says it it, uh, it casts a pall over everything. You know, I mean, can you really enjoy that birthday cake knowing it may be your last? Right. Yeah. That makes you enjoy it more. <laughs> That's true. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the world's gonna end in five minutes. Eat that fucking cake and love it. <laughs> <laughs> enjoy that supermarket icing. <laughs> Can I make it to Cheesecake Factory in time? Oh, because that's dog, right? <laughs> hey, if you're gonna if you're gonna face the apocalypse, apparently a Cheesecake Factory is a place to be. I have never been to a Cheesecake Factory, and I lived literally for a time when my wife and I were first married. I lived like five minutes away from one. I just never went. I just never went. The food is really subpar. Really? Um, yeah, yeah, it it's just not anything. So I, I think I've been like. We got one, I don't know, a few years ago, and my suggestion would be to get some takeout just cheesecake. Yeah. Because the cheesecake is the shit. Like, there's a key lime cheesecake that is the absolute bomb. But that's, yeah, that is, there's a reason they call it Cheesecake Factory, and what that translates to is don't eat any fucking thing else. They <laughs> <laughs> well, don't they have, like, a menu that, like, is pages long? Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. But it's like it's like if Applebee's, you know, it's just it's not exactly. It's not like inedible, but it is not exciting. At all. <laughs> Damn. Yep. You should put that on their Yelp. A, a horror fiction podcast, and we're throwing shade at Shane. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. If it, if the people we've thrown shade at ever got yeah. wind of it, we'd be so fucked. Well, I'm just thinking the inverse, like a food podcast that's talking shit about the latest Paul Tremblay novel. <laughs> yeah. Oh fuck those now, guys! Now, as we eat this quiche, let us all ponder how much Paul Tremblay's Survivor song sucks dick. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Fast acting rabies. Fuck off. <laughs> And this is how you know I'm tired, because I get fucking punchy. Oh, shit. <laughs> I don't feel like we're helping, because somehow I got us on Cheesecake Factory. Right. <laughs> yeah. so you, got, you took us straight from dwelling on death to talking about cheesecake. Yeah. Well, you know, there is a connection. Yeah, the, the apocalypse. <laughs> is light and frothy? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, fuck. This is off the rails already. All right. <laughs> okay, so let's uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, your work. Um, yeah, because I never really did that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, not not much. I I want to die. I want to dive a little bit with standalone though. So. Okay. Um. So I'll give you the Spider-Man origin story, and then we can talk about the latest shit. Um. Yeah. All right, so as I said before, like I said, Bones Made Rogue was my first book, and Shane, you were a big cheerleader of that, which at the time when, you know, at I was just a short story writer because I was a big believer in making your bones in short fiction before you try to expand. And Bones itself, the title novella, was a big jump for me in terms of um, the length and the subject matter because there was nothing supernatural about it at all. Um so from there, I, that led to a lot of fun in, invites. It's always nice. You know, you, you're starving for attention when you're just struggling. Then you publish one book and suddenly people are like, hey, you want to write this? And I'll be like, hey, you paying? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, all right, write them. Uh, but that also led to some really interesting stories um, that 
relate to standalone actually. So from there, I published. Um, I did a few. I, I got into a bunch of places, um, including collaborating with Brock and McLeod, which was a dream project um, that appeared in Chiromat Four, and then was a special edition, limited edition through Nightworm's Thunderstorm Books, and then. I wrote Standalone, which is probably the weirdest marriage of my two influences I can imagine. And that's coming out. And, and you want to talk to me about it. So, yay. And that's my introduction. Don't shank me. <laughs> <laughs> no, you passed the test, new fish. You're good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, Paul, I was just kind of curious. You know, I really loved the kind of concept you had behind Standalone. Yeah. I was wondering if you kind of wanted to touch on, you know, maybe what inspired you to kind of take that direction, because a lot of times when you when you talk to fans of slashers, especially like films, a lot of them are very particular about, you know, the framework of how those movies go and they expect certain things. And I love slashers, but what I liked about your novel is that you kind of pay homage to a lot of the things that are in classic slashers, but then you just completely flip that on its head. And I thought that that was so cool the way you did that. And I was just kind of wondering, you know, where the inspiration for that approach came. Well, it's funny. You, you're right. A lot of fans of slashers are very particular, which is amazing because when you think of standout slasher films, there isn't, there's a huge amount of slashers very few of them are memorable. No one yeah. at this point remembers Madman or Bloody Birthday or Pieces, and there's a reason why. Um, so, and and also that particular kind of obsessiveness leads to a certain meta quality to not, movies like Scream, which I'm not a big fan of personally, or um, Behind the Mask, Rise of Leslie Vernon. Um, I came of the age of reason. Um, in the late 80s, early 90s, which was kind of like the descent of slashers and kind of that dearth of horror fiction, horror movies that were in the 90s. Like, yeah, you had like, and the, the best things you got out of that were a few Halloween sequels. And um, I know what you did last summer. Um, but I grew up watching slashers. Like, I remember, well, I distinctly remember um, my mom and I, there was something wrong with our apartment. I think it was after our, there was a fire in our apartment building. So she was staying with, we were staying with her boyfriend. And it was a small little hovel of a place. And I ended up having to sleep on the couch. But my mom, my mom grew up loving horror fiction, horror movies. So, you know, I go to sleep, quote unquote, but I was a light sleeper as a kid. So I woke up and she's watching like Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2. Um... And that's kind of how my childhood was. I ended up seeing a lot of horror movies just kind of by osmosis. Like the thing that terrified me as a kid was like The Fly by Jeff Goldblum. I was fucking petrified. And now it's like one of my favorite movies of all time. But keeping it slashers. Um, and then, you know, as a teenager, I was kind of at the end of the mom and pop video stores. But I was still there at the time when you could go in and not pay $5 per movie for an old movie like a Blockbuster and get like – 10 movies for 10 bucks on like a Saturday night and then go home and, you know, get yourself prepared, shall we say, Shane, 
um, and watch a bunch of horror movies. I am a teacher, so, you know. We got ourselves yes. prepared with pizza and Dr. Pepper. Right, um, that's, uh, that's why I'm uh, refraining from mentioning anything like that. I respect um, teachers. I do appreciate it. Um, but it's cool. Um, so I was, I've, I, I've kind of been kind of immersed in it. I've actually been rewatching a lot of them this summer because of the fact, um, as in the lead up to the book coming, I've been writing a lot of articles for stuff like that. And people have been asking. So I was like, I'm going to sit back and revisit all of these. Like I reran the series on Nightmare on Elm Street. I watched a fuck ton of slashers on like the streaming service Tubi and stuff like that. And the thing that always kind of struck me is there are two types of slashers is there's the very, there's the slasher and it's usually not very memorable um, where there's almost no characterization of the villain at all. Like I think of a movie like the Prowler where it's just a love spurned world war two vet. That's literally the beginning and end of that person's characterization. Um, Pieces is another one. There's no examination of why the guy is like the way he is. Um, and then you have slashers where they're so characterized that the audience actually starts rooting for them, partially because there there are so many sequels. Kind of you're standing on the shoulder of the previous movie, like Freddy and and Mike Myers and um, Jason Voorhees, but also because uh, they character they turn these mass murderers into folk heroes. Um, so one of my favorite slashers, and it's hand, I literally was on another podcast that deals with, like, talk about this thing, this movie, and and we'll critically analyze it. And I was like, we're going to do Behind the Mask. And Behind the Mask, have you guys seen that movie? Yeah, I've okay. seen it. Good, good, because most of the time when I say Behind the Mask, Rise of Legends of Your Own, people go, what? Um, because it really, it, it's one of the best slashers out there, but it made almost no impact, and that's a shame. Um, for your audience that may not know, Behind the Mask is basically it premises a world where Freddy, Jason, Mike Myers, even Chucky are real killers, and the entire supernatural elements of them are just kind of their mythology, their urban legend. But they were real people who really did these murders. And Leslie Vernon is a guy who wants to enter their ranks, okay? Um, and the way the movie frames it is a bunch of graduate student documentarians who film in this guy's drives. And up until he the the it turns more cinematic towards the end of the movie, he's charming. And even though he's doing bad things like killing Zelda Rubenstein, you're 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 you like Leslie Vernon. Or Leslie Mancuso is his real name is his real name. And I was thinking about it and I was like, All right, you have someone like Leslie Vernon. You have someone like Freddy Krueger. You have someone like Jason Voorhees. And can you tell a story about it? Can you tell a slasher that, A, gives them context, gives them characterization, but B, keeps them evil? Like, they are legitimately bad. But C, in spite of them being bad, in spite of the audience acknowledging that it's bad and it's not something that should be celebrated or exploited as tends to happen in a lot of slashers, um, can I get an audience rooting for them? Conversely, by that same nature, I have to make the antagonist as understandable and as empathetic and as well characterized as my protagonist. And really, the story kind of spun out of me trying to make sense of that. How can I do it? 
And that's where I get into multiple dimensions and, you know, the existence itself. Because it's the only way I can make sense of the damn thing. Because it's really hard for me to kind of, unless you are becoming like a fan of Charles Manson, it's really hard to celebrate someone slaughtering. And even my main character, if you've read the book, Hmm. acknowledges this is not good. I am not doing good things here. I am doing bad things for hopefully a good reason. Yeah. Uh, and that, and that kind of intrigued me. But when I first got the idea, and I got the idea a few years back, it was, around the time Bones was getting was being produced, I was I had the idea, and I was going to people like Max Booth, and I was going to people like Bracken McCloud, who at the time didn't knew me as a person, but we had never worked together. And I'm like, have you heard of this? Does this sound like something? This sounds like it has to have been something. And they're like, no. I was like, okay, I'll figure it out. Um and then I obviously did. That was a long-winded answer for that. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, that that kind of stuff is great, and um, you know, it's cool to hear things like that. You know, I had kind of, I think, somehow heard bits of that. Um, I think like in the afterward. But that's one of the things that I thought was cool, like you said about the main character, was like you said, they're obviously evil because of what they're doing. But you kind of get more of like what's going on in their brains. And in the case of that character, you know, he's kind of self-aware of, you know, mm-hmm. what he's doing, which is something that you don't often get. Like a lot of those slashers, like you said, there's some that have great characterization, but you might not necessarily see what their thought process is beyond, you know, them just slashing people. <laughs> And and, 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 and the, if we're all honest with ourselves, a big draw of slashers and a big draw of yeah. the 80s was the special effects kills. Maniac is not really that memorable, the original one, I mean, aside from the fact that Tom Savini's head gets exploded with a shotgun. Like, that's amazing. Also, the guy who plays uh, the Maniac is just so sweaty and uncomfortable looking that if you do remember it, you remember that. Um, but a lot of times, slashers are more—they're—they're more memorable for how they kill the victim than the victims themselves or the story itself. Yeah, yeah, I can definitely uh, agree with that because, like, any time that you kind of see lists about slasher movies, that's pretty much inevitably what comes up—is you know, like best slasher kills and yeah. stuff like that. And, and, you know, it's popcorn, and, and that's fine. I'm not I'm not denigrating it. I love a good, I love a good kill. I mean, I'm from Pittsburgh, man. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm calling the zombies, Tom Savini, and George Romero. Um, you know, my, I have my, one of my PPE is, uh, my, my social media mat, uh, photo is a PPE mask made by Tom Savini. Um, you know, so I can definitely appreciate it. But... I kind of, after a while, it starts feeling all like every everything tastes like vanilla. Yeah. Where you start looking for a good story. Like, I keep mentioning the movie Pieces. came out in 1980. Almost no one remembers it because it isn't very good. <laughs> yes. uh, if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. But a very similar plot, but way superior, would be a movie like Lucky McKee's May. Because that would classify as a slasher. And it's a great film. Yeah, I'm gonna have to look that one up. I'm not familiar with uh, the Lucky McKee one, but I am a uh, I am familiar with pieces. It, it's not. It's such. <laughs> it, it makes no sense. 
No, it's, it's pretty terrible. And like one of the things that I couldn't understand about that movie in particular, and it really like bothered me. I watched it on shutter. It was like the whole movie shot like in English. And it seems yeah. like the production values were fine, but then they went back and dubbed the actors voices like afterwards and it just i I don't know it was really weird i think it was a i think it was an american maybe italian um production i looked into it when i watched it i watched it back in like june or may because if nothing else pandemic has led me to watching a lot of horror movies (laughs) and it it does have that uh that quality the thing that made no sense is the reveal of the killer made no sense like wait a minute one to one but one of the fun things is I try to avoid putting a lot of Easter eggs in standalone. Like I put like mm-hmm. one or two uh, in there, more, more sly stuff. But like the promo materials I've been making for the book, that was like fuck it, I'm gonna do all Easter eggs. And one of like the trading cards uh, that Max and Perpetual Motion Machine produced, they were asking me for info. And one of the slasher killers, the actor, the the actor, the killer is named Dean Foley. Who's the bad guy in pieces? And I was like, I have to fucking do that shit. <laughs> like, no one will get that Easter egg except for like maybe five people. And I'm like, I don't give a shit. It was funny. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's. I, I that's love awesome. those. I, uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Rich. No, I was just saying that's awesome. Go ahead, Laurel. Well, that's. I mean, yeah, I like the. I like the trading card thing i i saw something about that earlier that um now is that is that related to the nightworms package or this going with that or is that something for like the people who've pre-ordered through perpetual motion that is strictly for perpetual motion nightworms um they nightworms is great man working with them being able to work with them twice that's that's fucking heaven um that they get a they're getting a signed book plate and the book plates look like movie rental cards which is awesome um the trading cards was was I don't know what started the conversation, but early on after Max and Lori accepted the book, Max and I are putting our heads together like promo materials for like pre-orders and bookstagrammers and stuff like that. And I it, when I was a kid, I read comics because I came up. I was a kid when Batman the M A series and X Men the cartoon came out, so I started reading comics through that. And Marvel comics used to put out trading cards of their main characters. And I said to him, like, what if we did trading cards of killers I reference or at least hint at in the book? Like, so the scarecrow, and that's what the main character is dressed as or what he's seen as in the first scene and shit like that. Uh, the Jersey Devil's reference when he's in the movie store. Uh, the ghost hunter, Dean Foley, he, uh, when, at towards the end when they're in that one prison that was used for a ghost hunting show, that's the killer there. Um, I was like, what if we did that? And he was like, all right. And he got Luke Spooner to illustrate it. And I had to come up with all the trivia on the back of them. Um, he sent me this past week, a set of the cards. And I was like, I have my own trading cards, but they come with the pre-orders. If you go to the main, uh, perpetual motion machine publishing website. That is, that is very cool. That's, that's different. I, I don't think I've seen that in the way of, uh, of promo material. So that's, that's super sweet. I, I loved it, not just because, hey, I got cards, but it, it like willing to invest that kind of time and energy and, to be honest, money because it's a small company into promoting the book 
Because some of you be like, oh, it's another horror book. And there are tons of horror books. Like, Laurel, you had a great uh, first no- uh, novella just come out. Um, and the word of mouth is huge on that. But you know, working in small press, like, having someone be- backing you and willing to... Uh, I'm in my... You might have heard my dryer. Um, having a small press be willing to back you and having the word of mouth kind of be generated in any way possible to get people eyeballs on the book, that counts for a lot. Um Absolutely. So when they were like, so when they were like, we'll do this for you, I was like, really? And hell, and he's been, and Max has been helping me get the press set up for this book. I was like, that's amazing because this is my third book technically, if you count how we broke, and this is the first time I've ever really done press as so much like and, and press by which I mean I end up talking with you know Shane and you guys for like an hour and a half, um, <laughs> but still that counts. Because people are going to hear and be like, he doesn't sound too much like a douchebag. Um, and <laughs> so, like, the cards were amazing. But just this process has been an education, you know. As I'm sure you, Laurel, you can definitely kind of get behind because your book just came out not too long yeah. ago. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, not quite three weeks ago, yeah. And and really, I, it's I, been three weeks? Because people have been talking about that book all summer, but this summer has been a blur. It, it has been a blur, but in, I mean, in large part though, that's, it's exactly what you were talking about having an indie press that gets behind you because, um, Sam, you know, with off limits press, like that was a big thing that we talked about initially was she was like, you know, yeah, I mean, she, she did a lot with the advanced reader copies, yeah. um, you know, and, and sent them to the bookstagrammers and things like that. So there was a lot more like word of mouth beforehand, um, so, yeah, I mean, that's she's been super awesome to work with on that. And that's everything I've heard about working with Perpetual Emotion and Max Booth. Like that's I mean, they just seem like a press who just get really invested in their authors. It, it, and it's nice because Matt, both Max and I came from I've I've, I've known Max. So long. I edited his first book when we were working for another press and that press went away, thankfully. Um, so we have he and I both have a lot of experience of. A book comes out and it kind of just, you could hear the thud of it hitting the ground because no one else is talking about it. it's silence. Yep. Um, so and that and that's that's unfortunately the reality of small press. So when you have when you can get that word of mouth going, when you have a press really backing you and be like, no, we're going to spend the time and invest. Because I think a lot of presses, especially after the end of Dorchester and the rise of the small press and POD publishing is throw as many books out in the market as much as possible. Unfortunately, you do that, no one's paying attention. And no one really gives a shit because everyone's kind of like, there's too much clutter. So when someone like Sam or someone like Max and Lori can be like, all right, we're going to focus on this. It's it, it, it's 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 both warm because you because someone's paying attention. and like, hey, someone believes in the story, is willing to go to bat for it. But also it's like, Hey, I have the spotlight on me for a little bit. Man, it's only been three. Are you kidding? Really, Laurel? Three weeks? <laughs> yeah, it's been <laughs> out in that book since like May. Like people have been talking yeah. about that book forever. Well, and it's so much of it has to do with like the cover. Like, that you know, this is cover. yes, and that was just one of those things. Like again, when we talked, like you know, she was just like, okay, here's what's important to me, like custom covers, you know, and and just like this, you know, this list of things, and I had. I had one other book out and so I had sort of knew just enough to know kind of what I didn't want, you know, yeah. and what, you know, what, what could have been improved. And so, 
yeah, I mean, those kinds of things. Although I do, I mean, when you say like, you know, you have the spotlight on you for a minute, like I was hyperventilating before this one because I was like, you know what? When Whispers in the Dark came out, nobody knew who I was. No yeah. one had any expectations, like nothing yeah. happened. And then when there's a whole bunch of like buzz, you're like, what if it fucking tanks? <laughs> yes. Like what if That's everyone's what like, right new Laurel? Oh, she was a one hit wonder. Fuck her. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. So, I, I've been dealing with that a lot. I've been dealing with that a lot. Like it's, it's nice. Cause I get into a podcast with you guys or, uh, someone I know at lit reactor asked me to write something or something. And it's like, okay, I know you guys, but there's that apprehension of, all right, I'm doing all this work. What, what, what if it fucking tanks and no one likes it? Well, uh, and I'll, I'll back up there though. And say though, I, you know, having read it, it doesn't tank. It's fucking awesome. It's really, really excellent. That was my introduction to your work. And it, I mean, I just flew through it. Like, and it, it, I mean, it's just totally different. You know, it's completely novel, but has an immediate hook. Okay. So I'm going to stop gushing, but. (laughs) No, but I appreciate it. Because this for me and Shane knows this better than anyone else is like, it's different from what I usually write. Um, Uh, How We Broke is vaguely supernatural, but it's, it's still very. The, uh, I have two aim, I have two predominant influences. I have many influences, but the two ones that I have, I they're my touchstones, um, are Jack Ketchum and Harlan Ellison, two writers of very different styles, very different motivations, very different interests, but both had a very big hand in shaping when I was. You know, they weren't my introduction to horror fiction. They weren't my ad- introduction to adult fiction. That was, oddly enough, John Grisham. Um, but when I started kind of coming up with my own ideas and trying to figure out how to tell those stories, those were the two I kind of looked at, especially Jack Ketchum, because I loved how he could make you feel, even if you felt awful, um, like um, the novel Red. Like that novel is just about a guy get like the circumstances of someone killing a dog, and oh that's God. literally it. it or the secret life. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Um, when I read his last novel, The Secret Life of Souls, and I knew, and and this is kind of getting a little weirdly personal, and I knew it was the last Jack novel. I like I this not the novel has a happy-ish ending, but like I fucking bawled, dude. Yeah. As like that was it. I'm there's nothing else. I'll tell and, you a secret. Oh, go ahead. No, no, go please. I still have uh, four Ketchum books remaining to read, and I've only been letting myself read one a year because because they're it. So I oh yeah. That. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, one of the great gifts. I mean, Dallas um, was a great guy, and I'm not gonna. I I. Do not pretend it, I was not a big friend of his. Like we didn't, we didn't know each other. He was just a really nice guy who, yeah. when first starting out, I sent him an email asking some advice. I was working on a trunk novel, what I didn't think was a trunk novel, but was very much a trunk novel. Because um, <laughs> you never think they're a trunk novel when you're writing. Nah. And he gave me some great advice. And then, uh, like a year later, we were doing a con together. And I came up and I introduced myself and I, you know, and he signed, I think I, I bought hide and seek off of him. And um, I was saying, you know, I'm really looking forward to your talk at eight o'clock. And he was like, what? I was like, yeah, you have a talk at like eight o'clock. He's like, I thought it was at nine. I was like, nah, dude, it's at eight o'clock. 
And keep in mind, this is like three minutes into a conversation of me just walking up to his table. He's like, do you mind watching my table? I have to go up to my room and check it out. And so at three minutes after really meeting him for the first time, I'm watching his fucking shit. <laughs> and he just left me there for like 15 minutes so I can go up to his room and check his program. Um, <laughs> I have a cigarette, no, in Dallas. Um, and from there, it was like that That was our brief correspondence. I was able to – when I was an editor, I was able to edit a story of his um, called Oldies. Um, and then he gave me that amazing blurb for Bones Made to be Broken. Yeah. Um, which – uh, Michael Bailey had warned me he doesn't necessarily give a lot of blurbs because he has to love it from top to bottom, and it's a collection. So he had to love every fucking story in that book in order to blurb it. And I wrote him after he sent me the blurb. I mean, I was almost like I I shrieked when oh, I, I, I got that email from Mike because Mike Michael was the one who told me gave me the blurb from Dallas, and he thanked me. And this was towards the end. I found out a year later. Um, and this is so far off the question of what we were talking about. Um, I found out a year later, some some guy on social media, he reached out to me and was like, hey, I really liked your book. I was like, oh, thanks, man. He's like, Dallas gave it to me. I was like, what? He's like, because Dallas, he lived in New York City. And if you happen to track, if you lived in the city and you happen to track him down, more often than not, he would give you some time, give you some pointers. And that he was kind of, this guy was kind of an unofficial student of Dallas's. And I did not know it at the time, but he was giving my book out to people to be like, show them how it's done. That's righteous. Oh, wow. That is awesome. And he told me, and this is after, this is 2018. Dallas died in 2017. Um, I found this out in the summer of 2018 and I fucking lost it. Like that, like it hurt when Dallas passed. It hurt when Harlan passed. And I knew Harlan a little better than Dallas. Um, but that just destroyed me. Um, but that he, because he was not just a great person, but he was also a very personable writer. He wrote some dark shit, but he made you feel it. And I was kind of, I was really gravitated toward that. Um, and Shane knows that from my other work is I've really grabbed, I always like the idea of kind of, for me, horror is more emotional than visceral. Um, I mean, I do the visceral very gladly. Um, very well i i I, there like when the set piece in standalone where my main character comes across the uh the two teenagers going heels to heels to jesus and putting person in the playpen and driving a a fireplace poker through their backs that's fun but i also like the fact that by the end of that story that main character who did that with glee well not glee i wrote it with glee is emotionally broken (laughs) (laughs) And that's and that's the kind of thing I like to write. Harlan, um, I was able to work with. I was his editor for about a year and a half. Um, but before then, I was just a big fan of his work. And anyone who's not familiar with Harlan, I was talking with a guy recently. He's, he's like, I've heard of Harlan. I've never read Harlan. I'm like, you need to read um, all the lies that are you uh, that are my life, which was a short story in his Shatterday collection back in 1980. Mm-hmm. And it's not supernatural. It's not fantasy at all it's told it's a first person story about a uh, about a wannabe writer he never quite made it and he's going to a will reading of his best friend who was like this superstar writer um and it's a short no it's a little novelette but it's it shows how great harlan was as a writer um but he also dealt in very big ideas very fantastic ideas yeah he did so so standalone is really like taking me trying 
to marry the two sensibilities together because Harlan could never have written like Dallas. Dallas could never have written like Harlan. Harlan Dallas at his craziness led to something like Ladies' Night, you know, whereas Harlan at his most subdued led to a story like Shatterday, which is where a character comes to realize that he kind of wishes his mother was dead um, through multiple dimensions, oddly enough. Um, so standalone for people to like it. So you saying great things, Laurel, like you can call it gushing. I'm like, yay, thank you. Cause I'm a neurotic writer. Thank you for validating me. Um, <laughs> because it was truly me trying to marry those two sensibilities. Something I hadn't done before. Either I go completely personable with one like bones made him broken or, one of my favorite stories to this day is a story called um, "All That You Leave Behind," which is at the which closes out "Bones Are Made to Be Broken," and I publish I it in Max's that story. Sorry. I wrote. Oh no no! I I that makes me feel good because I wrote it. I I I kind of funneled all my fears of being a parent in that story, um, which is weird because I because there there's really no child in that story at all. It's about trauma of miscarrying in multiple dimensions. Um. Then I did something like afterwards where I was after that book came out where I wrote something like about a sentient man eating lake. And that's just fucking weird. Yeah, it is. It's a great story, though. I love that. I love that premise. Oh, that I was so happy. It was called um, How I Became a Cryptid out of a 1970s horror movie. It's about a guy who was cursed into being a man eating lake. And that's it. Yep. You know, that happens to you. Yeah, you know, as one does. As, exactly. As, yeah, it happens sometimes. That's, what, that's, I, that's why they tell you not to go in the pool right after eating. Yeah, you might become a man-eating lake. Um, God, that was so weird to write because I was trying to figure out, okay, we deal, in human, we deal with reality through our five senses. How does that translate when you're a fucking lake? I had to figure that out to tell the story. <laughs> I never thought of that. That's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, trust me, I obsessed about it. So when Space and Time magazine bought it, I was like, oh, thank Christ. <laughs> <laughs> I could not think of how to market that fucking story. The premise sounds awesome. Uh, let's see if it lands. Um, <laughs> but standalone is me. It doesn't sound like it's a – to me, it sounds – to hear me say a slasher that – with science fiction overtones is a real risk for me. Sounds so fucking pretentious, mm. but in, in my ears, I mean, but actually sitting down and be like, all right, I want to talk about slashers and I want to keep them evil, but I want to make them sympathetic, but right. I kind of want the antagonist sympathetic. So if the protagonist were to lose, you would understand why, but also I want to have some emotional gravitas and I wouldn't mind driving a hatchet through someone's skull. Let's see if we can do that. <laughs> it's the horror writer's wish so, list. So no biggie. Kind of, kind of like I hadn't heard you call it uh, horror science fiction or slasher science fiction. Um, and what I had written down and thought while I was reading it was uh, slasher cosmic meta fiction. So. I mean, yeah. I mean, I wrote it as a as a horror story. That, that was my intent. I wasn't trying to be like, I wasn't trying to match genres, although I do tend to just do that naturally just because I read a lot. So a lot of genres kind of bleed in. But um, Adam Cesar, who audience members, if you're not reading Adam Cesar's like tribesman in the summer job, 
get the fuck on that. Um, he yeah, honestly, no lie. Oh, I love Adam. He's great. Um, I, I just picked up Clowns in the Cornfield and a, a Clown in the Cornfield, and I'm looking forward to reading that shit. But my TBR pile is big enough to beat a whale to death with. Um, unbeached. I'll beat a whale to death in the ocean. Um, <laughs> but he was on his YouTube. Yes. <laughs> Again, I'm tired. So punchy. But he was talking on his YouTube channel. He's like, it's being marketed as a horror book, but I would classify this as sci-fi. And I'm like, I can't argue that. Although I think any self-respecting, like, I know some sci-fi geeks. I know some sci-fi geeks, and they would turn their nose up at it. So it's almost like science fiction for horror fans. Um, Funny story. I'm apparently full of them. I'm the Kevin Smith of horror fiction, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) I'm from Pittsburgh originally, like I said. And there's a regional con there called Confluence. And it's ostensibly for fantasy, science fiction, and horror. And it's both a media and kind of a professional con, professional in the sense that writers show up and there's workshops and shit. And in 2012, I was ta- I was asked to help out because, and this is true, although they were a horror con, they did not know any horror writers except me. <laughs> At all. <laughs> they could get, you know, John Scalzi and Shannon McGuire, who are great writers in, the, in their own right. They could get Bill Swanwick or uh, yeah, Bill Swanwick, and um, who the fuck else would they typically get? Oh God, he had a ponytail and he wrote a werewolf trilogy for Bane. Um, I forget his fucking name. I can just see his face and not like it. Um, <laughs> <in my memory. laughs> I was trying so hard not to laugh when he was describing. <laughs> Oh, God, if anyone from Pittsburgh hears that, they'll probably be like, I know who you're talking about. You're such a prick. Like, I did panels with him. Um, imagine the BTK killer, but he Krispy Kreme instead of killing. Um, damn, that was mean. I'm sorry. That was the best thing. In any event, they didn't know any horror writers. So they asked me to like ask as many horror writers as I could. So that year, that's the one, and that was last year I did it. Like John Mayberry, Tim Wagoner, Gary Brombeck, Gary's a great guy, Lucy Snyder, um, John Paul, John Joseph Adams. Um, who else the fuck showed up? I'm forgetting people, and I'm gonna feel bad because I swear I still talked to him at some point. Um, but they all showed up, and it was like there's this cadre of horror writers, and it was. It was like a Lovecraft fan showing up at a Star Wars convention. <laughs> if it was the most awkward but amusing three days of my life. Because I'm sitting there talking with John Mayberry, who, by the way, is a giant, wears loud Hawaiian shirts, and will still scare the shit out of you because he moves like a fucking still breeze. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, he's in the Martial Arts Hall of Fame, so yeah, it makes exactly. sense. But Jesus Christ... Me saying it and the reality, very different things. Um, and it, that was great. Hang out with Tim Wagner and Gary, and that was the first time I met Gary Brombeck. Um, that was fun. But you ha- then you have these guys who have never read anything that wasn't published by, like, Daw. If it wasn't published by Daw Books, they didn't fucking read it. If, unless they had they, they had the Star Trek True of Pursuit kind of shit, you know, that kind of sci-fi. 
And so here we are, like it was it was the most it was like we were all Ali Sheedy in the Breakfast Club. And <laughs> and everyone else was Michael Anthony Hall. Or Anthony Michael Hall. Um the kid who had a flare gun, which owner I forget that actor's name. Yeah, I think I think that was no, I think wait. it's Anthony Michael Hall. It's some, yeah, yeah, it's, so. it's some so. combination of those three names. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. It's not Hall, it's Hall Michael Anthony. So where the hell were we? <laughs> yeah. I was making fun of sci-fi fans, and now people are going to be like, fuck him up. Yeah. <laughs> fuck him up his ass! Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I made a I made a comment about Beyonce one time, and Rich was terrified for weeks. <laughs> yeah, you weren't ready to sip that lemonade, son. <laughs> no, no, because I've seen horror stories of like uh, I'm not even gonna get into it just in case they stumble across it. Yeah. No, no, the fans you gotta worry about are fucking Swifties. Yeah, Swift will cut a bitch. Oh fuck yeah! <laughs> <laughs> oh my. God. And and the thing about them God, is you yeah. can't you, know what? you can't even recognize them. That's true. It's the most unexpected generic people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, I guess uh, now we got to worry about Swifty showing up. Here. You know what? Bring it on to me. Bring it on to me. Leave the guys alone. That's all me. Fuck you, Taylor. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck you, there Taylor. There was that mashup. There was that mashup of um, Shake It Off with uh, the Perfect Drug. Do you ever guys see that on YouTube? No. No. It's amazing. Go look at the mashup of, of Shake It Off with a per- Nine Nails as a Perfect Drug, and it syncs up so fucking beautifully. Like. I don't mind Taylor. I have a nine-year-old daughter, and she's more and she she just likes the idea of girl singers. So I try to introduce her to things like the Dolly Rots and Betty and um, Betty, Go Betty Go, I female yeah. punk bands, Charlie Bliss, Wolf Alice, and that. But she loves like Taylor Swift and Pink and shit like that. So I don't mind it. But like you get a mashup like Nine Inch Nails is Taylor Swift or the there is a Taylor Swift song they did with Tool. They took a Tool Stink Fist and they put it with a Taylor's, and it fucking slaps. I was like, this is this is legit. I'm gonna bust my booty on this. <laughs> I just shared that video with you guys to watch later. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, I well. I'll just say my problem with Taylor Swift has entirely to do with the fact that she's not mature enough to be in the adult world. Like she is like, you know, she wrote her music. She, she, I was really impressed. I was like, man, you know, this girl can sing. She's really impressive. And then she kept writing the same songs. And then she decided that anyone who didn't like her work were bullies. And I was like, okay, sweetheart, I need (laughs) you to go home. I need you to have a talk with your mom or whoever is guiding you. And you need to come back when you're a grown up. That's my problem with Taylor Swift. That's it. Right. And lay off the crank. <laughs> that's Miley. <laughs> yeah, that's Miley. Now uh, she's gonna be more mad at you because you accused her of. I'm <laughs> I just took the heat off me. I just don't worry about stuff like that. Everybody knows she's not a crankhead, right? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> now there's a question. <laughs> now there's a question. And where there's hmm. a question, there's a creepypasta. We'll we'll see it. We'll, <laughs> we'll see it in the fucking Inquirer next week. Yeah, Taylor Swift crank addict. <laughs> um. Nah, I don't. I don't even want to segue into what I was about to say because it involves someone with the initials JB that rhymed with fever, and I don't want to go there. <laughs> we got very much into pop culture all of a sudden. Absolutely. <laughs> Wait, what? Fucking hard. Fucking Matt over at Grindcast would be proud of us right now talking about this shit. Matt Wilson. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, shit. So so it was interesting, too. I was looking at some stuff today and reading over my old review of Bones. um, And uh, it's like I got to looking at at it, and it's like, okay, so I first read you back when I didn't know who the fuck you were. You were in a Grey Matter Press anthology. Yeah. Uh, And I don't remember the anthology, but the story was crawling back to you. That was uh, Savage Beast. Was it? Yeah. Yep. I remember that it was one of my favorite stories in the book. And then, you know, which is why when uh, you contacted me about Bones, I immediately said, fuck yeah, toss it over here yesterday, you know. Um, And it opens that book. So anybody wanting, you know, I don't know. Is that still in print? Uh, Bones or Savage Beast? Bones. Yeah, yeah, Bones is definitely in print. Um, Bones went through an ownership change. Um, right. Originally, as you recall, Dark Dark uh, Regions Press put it out because they had hired Michael Bailey to have his own little imprint to help edit other things. Um, and they put out like a gorgeous hardcover and shit like that. But uh, as detailed in various other venues, including the horror show with Bri- uh, Brian Keane, Dark Regions is not necessarily the best press, or at least not being handled the way it probably should be. Yeah. So Mike Bailey and all Mike, Mike Michael Bailey and I got out, and that's kind of crushing because it was like literally a year after Bones had come out. It was oh, like 2017, okay. mm, a year and a half or so. So, um, but Michael Bailey before and after had his own little like boutique press for like his Carol Mad anthologies and things like that, and right. clearly. And, uh, I, I don't know, Qualia New or something like that. Like the sci-fi horror one that I'm in. Oh, yeah, Qualia New. Yeah, that one. Yeah. Um, Called Written Backwards. And he's like, well, I'll put it out through that if you don't mind. I mean, it's a small press. And I'm like, I don't give a shit. It, like, you know, one, I trust you. I've been working with him since 2014, yeah. 2013. Um, and that's how we got Bracken and McLeod to do the afterword and shit like that. And I added story notes to it. So it came out in 2018. And so it's still uh, it's still in print, thank goodness. And I still yeah. actually make a nice little bit of royalties on it. Um, you know, it's not paying the mortgage, but you know, for a book that's been out for four years, yeah. to still get royalty checks on that shit is nice. That's right. It was 2016, wasn't it? That's when I reviewed that fucker too. Yeah. Uh, Water under the bridge. Um, yeah, yeah. Crawling Back to You is a fun story. I, I remember writing that and being really excited because I've I've always loved that song because it's the penultimate song to Tom Petty's Wildflowers, and I'm a huge Tom Petty fan. And which is funny given the fact of how into otherwise into punk I am. 
Um, but I love Tom Petty, and I love that song. Even when I was a kid, I'd hear that song. I'm like, there's a story there. So to finally be able to use it to tell a story was amazing. And so, yeah, it, it um, I think when I was putting Bones together, that was always going to be the opening story because it, it, to me, it had the easy, it had the quickest opening, but also the one that would be the least confusing. It was the best starter yeah. of them all. Yeah, there were there were some that um, probably could have been off-putting to people who hadn't eased into um, your your very unique approach to fiction. Yeah, like I think I, I, I there are probably better hook lines and better openers. Like I think of uh, "Baby Grows a Conscience," yeah. which to this day I think I I can recall because it was um it was easier to hold a gun to a little girl's head than Richie thought, which is a great opening line and it, it follows and the, and the book falls from there. Uh, the story falls from there, but I can't, you can't open a book like that. <laughs> You're yeah. like, fuck no. <laughs> fuck this guy. <laughs> <laughs> he put a gun to a little girl's head in the first page. <laughs> it's only going to get worse from there, so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> God. Yeah. Um, yeah, but but the thing is, though, is that no more shocking than anything Jack Ketchum ever wrote. Nothing that you... Yeah have written so far just unique like that um and i mean to see when when i read standalone it's like okay this is like if i were to take bones to were made to be broken all the stories in the collection and the novella um and take standalone and put those all together i can i can see the the same author there in in that in just the way you segue from top trope to trope and topic to topic and you take things and you put them together in ways people don't expect those sub- subjects to be put together, you know, um, I would have never, if so, probably the fact that Max said standalone, um, all he said to me about it was it's a, it's a slasher novel or slasher book. So I, so, well, fuck yeah, I want that. You know, he yeah. didn't mention he didn't mention all the rest of that stuff, and it's like, whoa, this is different. <laughs> it's it's hard to do an elevator. I can do an elevator pitch on the book, but it's it's not easy. Yeah. Um, I remember one review for Bones was you could see the writer, the rec- critic had said you could see the evolution of Anderson me uh, learning his craft, and I was like, that's fair. Ouch, but fair. Yeah. Um, and I and you know, if nothing else, I couldn't have written standalone back in 2014. But I also couldn't have written standalone immediately after Bones. I had to write something like I Can Give You Life, the novella that was in Ashes and Entropy. I had to write my man-eating lake story. I had to write How We Broke with Bracken McLeod. And then I could write I, you know. Standalone has been stewing in my head for about four years now, four, three years, three or four years now. Um, and it was the first thing I wrote after I quit smoking. So I was in a weird place mentally anyway. Because um, when you quit smoking, when you take away that little rec- yeah. that little chemical from your head, your brain doesn't know what the fuck to do. Yep. Um, and it, I'm like, I, 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 I want it to be like, hey, this is obviously a Paul Michael Anderson story. But I don't want it to seem like I was overreaching and trying to be something I wasn't. Because yeah. slasher fiction, slasher movies are everywhere. 
They, 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 and some were really good. Your next is one of my favorite horror uh, slasher movies, and it came out in 2010. Could never have come out in like 1982 or some shit. Um, but slasher fiction is more difficult. Yeah. Like Adam Cesar has written them. Um, Matt Serafini has written them. Stephen Graham Jones, who I'm, I'm on a big kick right now, has written them. Partially because he blurred my book, but also he's just an amazing fucking writer. Um, yes, he is. I was I was doing an interview a week or so ago, and half the interview I was just talking about Stephen Graham Jones. We didn't get to my book my book until like 20 minutes into the 35 minute conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I just spent it talking about how much I love the last Final Girl and how, after the people lights have gone out and shit like that. And I'm reading the Only Good Indians right now, but I threw out my back like a week ago. It's all better now, roughly. But I haven't been able to read really in like a week, and so I haven't progressed as much as I would like in that book. And I'm like, God damn it. <laughs> oh, yeah, that would suck because that one really kind of calls to you. It does. Uh, but I've also dealt with back problems well enough to know why you couldn't really read all that much, too. So. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> it, it's not pleasant. Nope. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so Paul, you, yeah. you were just kind of talking about, you know, how it's a little bit harder with, like slasher fiction what do you think are like some of the challenges you know because slashers are usually like we were saying earlier you know they focus on the kills and kind of the cool visuals and the practical effects like what were some of the challenges you know trying to i guess translate that to fiction maybe not necessarily with your own work but just in general of trying to bring that medium into fiction because like you said i i i'm not really aware of too many i know there are some out there but it doesn't seem to be a very common sort of subgenre in fiction at least i mean the closest you have and there is there are slashers. I'm gonna you know, we say then you're gonna get like twenty people on Twitter saying, Fuck you, here's worth <laughs> this. But yeah. the closest cousin to a slasher really is a standard serial killer novel in crime fiction or thriller. Um but in uh, an authentic chef's kiss slasher, um it is there is you were said at the top, there's a there's um structure to it there's a way of doing it and unfortunately a lot of slashers are kind of just a bunch of murder set pieces strung together with the thinnest plot you could imagine um which you can get away with in a visual medium you know yeah you're not going to remember the main characters talking for three minutes between kills because the kills are the ones going to take 10 minutes each yeah um like i was watching uh prom night and i was stunned by how much talking there is in that goddamn movie. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck? And I'd seen it when I was a teenager, but I didn't have the most perfect memory of it for reasons. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and watching it, watching it this past, like, I think two months ago, I was like, Jesus Christ, they're chatty. Um, but you can't do that in a novel a no, uh, or a novella, even. Um, it just doesn't fly. It wouldn't hold the attention. So the first thing is you have to actually have a plot that can carry the kills, yeah. for lack of a better term. Yeah. Um, instead of the kills kind of carrying the movie, the story has to carry the the story has to carry the book. 
Secondly, a lot of slashers, aside from the aforementioned, you know, icons of the genre, are kind of faceless. I mean, let's be honest here. How many how many people in mainstream who also like horror, happen to like horror, everyone's heard of Scream. How many people remember the killer's name is Ghostface? Let alone who the killer was? I mean, yes, I it changes. I that all the time. Yes, most people do. So most killers in slashers are just kind of ciphers. They they are they exist to perpetuate the kill. Right. For whatever reason deemed contextually appropriate for the story, for that movie. That doesn't really fly. I mean, you can have anonymous villains. Like it's very common in fiction to have like a uh, a narrator or no, I'm sorry, a na- not a narrator. A character talk in third person limited, but they don't reveal who they are. That's not uncommon. Again, you see in thrillers all the time. Um, so, but in a to have a slasher, have a slasher fiction, that's not going to fly. Um, so those are some of the challenges. Now, writing this book specifically, I learned quite quickly. Like the ideas were getting a little too big for my main character Jenkins to be able to understand. And by definition, by proxy, the audience to understand. So that's why I bring in uh, Martin and the character, the presenter, who are two characters who appeared in other stories. Mainly because these are otherworldly figures who, by definition of them being in the story, could serve as an anchor to the story. Um, They could ground and kind of exposit but while expositing still move the plot along which is really technical uh, to say i just needed someone to info dump and not look like an info dump um if i'm being honest <laughs> like i love i love those characters but initially i had no intention of using them yeah um and it was right around the time i got to the second section of the book where the the POV leaves Jenkins, the main character, and goes to his co-workers, then I realize, oh shit, I, I, I need someone to step in here and kind of corral everything. Um, and so that was my big thing. I, I ended up, and, I, and even when I was writing the story, I debated very hard whether or not to cut them out. And then I realized, no, I kind of need them. I need them to move the plot along. They have a purpose in the beyond an info dump. Even if info dump is the primary thing, they're info dumping in a way that they move the plot along and the plot moves them along. Um, and that was really difficult because there is no way Jenkins would understand what the hell is going on without help. And so he would have died. And there, there goes your story. Um, so that was very difficult to kind of come across and come through. Yeah, I and that I mean that does make sense. I I agree. I don't think that I don't see how it would have worked and progressed to the point that it reached without having them step in. Yeah. So I do I do think that was effective, but that is hard. I mean, especially when you've got something you know, and I don't feel like it's funny because you say that, but like I, it never occurred to me that they felt like an info dump, you know, that that it was like excessive exposition oh, or anything yeah. like that. It just I, you know, it just seemed like that was just an interesting aspect of it. So, I, yeah. No, Luke, I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say I, I feel like it was effective. 
And, I, and, yep. and that means, yay, did the job, because yep. <laughs> I brought them in for a very save-my-ass reason. But once they were in there, and once I kind of got myself used to it, I've never used characters beyond a single story. I might reference a location, but I, I like I have my little fictional city of Hathaway I tend to write stuff in, which is basically Pittsburgh moved to the center of Pennsylvania instead of western Pennsylvania. Um but I don't reuse characters, and I felt very unsure about that. But pulling them in, that made it work, um, and I'm glad it worked because, like I said, like I point, like you said, it would. It, it there's no way Jenkins could have figured it out um, and figure out a way to move it along. Because initially, when I wrote, when I conceived the story, I was like, all right, this is something I am going to write. Um, have all of you read, or at least two of, or one of you read? Like, has someone on this crew read Richard Stark's novels of Parker? Yes. Okay. You know how he writes his – he breaks his stories up into four parts. Yes, always. And the second part is oh, is never told from Parker's perspective. I had never paid attention to that, but you're absolutely right about that. I deliberately wrote standalone like a Parker novel. Huh. I'll be damned. But – what kind of obscures it is the intermission, which I bring the presenter and Marty in, and the coda, which ends the story. And initially, and that's where I was really hesitant to bring those characters in because it fucked up my rhythm. Because horror, more than any other genre, is very is like kissing cousins with crime fiction. And I love a good crime. I'm not a big series guy, but I love a good crime novel. I do too. Um, we all yeah. do. Oh, dude. My, one of my favorite writers is Eddie Little. I'm still pissed off he's dead. Um, and Shane Stevens. Like, I love this. I love those gritty, down, like, really rub your nose in the crime. Like, street crime. I love street crime novels. That's why I'm, I can't wait to read Blacktop Highway. Because um, I hear it's amazing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it, it's really good. I just finished it the other day, and it's pretty much what you described. Like, anybody that's into that genre it's it's one of the best i've read in a long time and that gets me excited because the last time i heard anyone raving like that was for nico walker's cherry and i and max booth was a big cheerleader for that book and i picked it up from the library because i wasn't sure if i wanted it and i got so fucking bored um and it it was really disappointing to me because i love that type of genre i love that genre that subgenre of crime um has anyone here read Eddie Little? No. I have not, but I'm going to now. <laughs> uh, he only put out two books he, before he died of a heart attack at the age of 53. But um, his first book he wrote while he's in prison. And it's a very thinly veiled, basically, memoir of how he got started. And basically writing the book cleaned him up. And then he wrote the sequel, Steel Toes. The first book was called Another Day in Paradise. And I found it by accident in, in like an outlet bookstore, not even like a Walden books, like one of those bookstores where it's like overstock books that the printer made too many of. So they kind of dump them for like two bucks a pop. Yeah. And I, I happened to just come across it by accident, fell in fucking love with it in spite of all its problems. And then he wrote a sequel called Steel Toes. And then he was supposed to write a third book and um, he died, unfortunately. Um, and the only other person I know who has read Eddie Little is Bracken McLeod, because he he barely made a dent 
Yeah, if he had la- been able to last, if he had lived, because dude lived a hard young life, so him dying at 53 of a heart attack wasn't surprising. Um, it, but he, it, it, it's raw, and I love that kind of novel. So when people were talking like chair about Cherry when that was making waves about two years ago, I got really excited, and then I got really, really bored and disappointed. But Blacktop Highway from every corner of the internet seems to be like this book is amazing. Yeah. And- Listening to you describe, like, kind of your work, you know, with your collections and stuff and kind of what you try and go for, I feel like you'll find a lot of similarities in that book. So I think you'll enjoy Excellent. it. Excellent. But what I was saying originally is, like, crime is a is – a, and then I, it's not surprising to me why I got into crime fiction. I'm not – I never intended to be a crime writer. I'm not a crime writer, you know, at all. But – I do have a great interest in it. And so in standalone, in slasher, slasher, like I said, in fiction, the closest cousin is the serial killer thriller. The thing that, the kind of thing that Patricia Keller, uh, Patricia Cornwell and Jonathan Kellerman, well, Jonathan Kellerman's more medical, um, really kind of got famous for. And it's like, but I like a good gritty crime novel. <clears throat> and so I was Me like, too. all right, I need, I need, I want to put, I want to put some of my love of crime fiction in there. And the only way I could think of doing it is how I structured the story. Cause I love, I don't like series characters personally, just cause it, and it always ends up at some point feeling vaguely self parody. Yeah. Um, but I love the Parker novels. The Parker novels are amazing and they, and, and they're all basically the same premise, yeah. but they're also engaging. You don't care. Yeah. Kind of like Lawrence blocks, uh, scutter novels do that too. At least I've me. never read, Anything beyond it. one short story by Lawrence Block. I've never read Lawrence Block. Wow. Yeah. Um, it sounds like, yeah, based on if you really dig Richard Stark, I mean, it's a totally fucking different experience. Don't get me wrong, but very gritty, very street nice. level. Nice. So, which is some of my favorite crime, too. I like it gritty and mean and at the street level. But yeah, kind of, kind of where I grew up. So it's more real to me. Same, same. I I love, I, you know, that's why there are certain novels I love by Elmer Leonard, but I don't care about Get Shorty, but I want a novel like Bandits and Killshot, you know? Bandits is my favorite Elmer Leonard novel, just because it's, one, it has a ridiculous opening, and two, it's just a fun little heist novel. It's like, it, it would be a Richard Stark novel if Richard Stark was given Prozac. Yeah, but that fucking thing... <laughs> But the Which beginning is, is weird, just Donald Westlake was such a goofy writer. Yeah, for anyone who doesn't know, Westlake is Stark. Did we already say that? No, I don't think so. Okay. Yep. One and the same, Donald Westlake and Richard Stark. But yeah, I uh, I don't. I've honestly I've read the Stark novels. I've never read anything by Westlake. Yeah, Nate, same. Neither. <laughs> But I love, like I said, I love a good critic crime. That's why I love Shane Stevens. Shane Stevens is almost completely unknown anymore. He's completely almost forgotten. But by reason of insanity, is almost a slasher novel. Um, but it's it's portrayed as a crime novel. Um, and I I love it. I haven't read it in years. I have to reread it, but my copy's falling apart and they're out of print. So. <laughs> 
I'm just sitting here like adding stuff to my Goodreads. This is what I do. Like, (laughs) (laughs) and it's funny. It's it's funny. I'm like listening to myself talk, and we're talking writers, and we're throwing, and I'm like, I'm talking more about other writers than I am about myself, and that's how I always am. (laughs) You know, you know, you're not. Sorry. No, go ahead. I was gonna say you're not unique in that. I mean, not all Mm -hmm. of our guests have been that way, but a lot of them, we spend a lot of time talking about other writers it's natural i i think it's i think because we all are inherently neurotic about our work yeah. like we don't we it's kind of like the deflection thing yes. uh, like i said in my day job i'm a teacher and more to the point i'm what's called a teacher consultant for the national writing project which means i go into other schools and tell teachers how to teach writing um Unfortunately, you can't do that or I can't do that without at some point pointing out that I talk the talk and I walk the walk. I am a freelance writer. I've been writing since I was 19 years old and getting paid for it since then. Yeah. Um, started out in journalism and went to fiction. So and I had to do a pre- I had to do a presentation back in March. And whenever you do a presentation for teachers, you always have to kind of give your bona fides. So you talk about college you went to, where you teach, where you've taught, and but it, but when it comes to writers, you always have to kind of give a writer bio, like writing teachers, you always have to give a kind of a writing bio. Well, I studied under you know Seamus Haney, you know, or something like that. Um, and I was like, I've been a freelance writer since I was 19 years old. Hi, how you doing? And I have to do it again <laughs> in September because I have to do a conference where I'm teaching how to write for an audience. And I hate it. I had the one nice thing about the pandemic is like nothing's done in person. So you can record everything. So I recorded my presentation. So I don't actually have to do it the day of. Nice. (laughs) But I'm sitting there recording myself talking about, hey, I'm the author of the books. Bones are made to be broken. How we broke standalone. And I'm like, you fucking dick. And one of my recordings, I do say that, and I had, and when my uh, supervisor emailed emailed me after I sent my material, I'm like, oh shit, I sent the wrong take. Um, <laughs> it's, but it is, I mean, there is nothing like every time I've like taken time off work to do something related to it, it's like you know, uh, I'm gonna take off Monday. I've got a reading, and I always put in parentheses in my email. She said pretentiously. Every yeah. single fucking time, because that's what it feels like. But it's not. But it, it is. It, 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 <laughs> objectively, this is what you do, Laurel. This is what I do. Um, you know. And but there's something of there's something inherent about the creation of art, even if it's just telling an entertaining story. Um, it's still art, and it's still valid. Yeah. But society doesn't. Like there, the, it's an old chestnut that America is anti-intellectual. We all know that. Yeah. Um, but more to the point, America, or at least modern culture, is very like Harrison Bergeron. Uh, you know, they, you know, to be an artist is to be different, to set yourself aside. Yeah. And there's always the inherent question of, well, what makes you good enough? Which, you know, to be fair, I got from my dad. So, you know, because um, he did ask me that. Um, <laughs> But uh, my my dad so just went straight to telling me I wasn't good enough. <laughs> oh, so my dad's better. He at least asked. Uh, <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> my dad's better than your dad. 
Sorry. My dad looks like Bob fucking Ross. <laughs> my my dad paints like Bob fucking Ross. <laughs> Swear to God, my dad's my dad is um almost seventy, and he never he always want he always he was dying to be compared to Barry Gibb. For some oh reason, he thought he thought how Barry Gibb looked was the height of cool. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm not kidding. And and it's oddly enough he's single um, now. Um, but <laughs> unfortunately, yes. So I mission accomplished. I am such a Generation X writer. I will throw shade at my parents. Um, <laughs> I do too. But he looks like Bob fucking Ross to the point that one Christmas when we were still talking, I gave him a Bob Ross T-shirt. He didn't appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> But it was the high. It was the only gift I ever remember actually giving the son of a bitch. Uh, <laughs> I'm high fiving you across the airwaves, man. I'm just thinking of the email I got from my dad. <laughs> for mine, it was like it was pretty good. I saw some errors, but you know, for a first effort, and I was like, you know, really? I accept that from a reviewer, but for my dad, go fuck yeah. yourself. That's kind of how I feel about that, too. Um, There's something inherently awkward. It's like watching a love scene with your parents. Them critiquing your art, it's just... (laughs) My mom is very supportive. She she buys my books. She pre-orders them and stuff like that. But I'm like, don't ever tell me about them. Don't ever (laughs) tell me what you thought of them. She... um, She did she did the Nightworth package that I did with Brack and she bought it. And she called me up. I think it was like the second or third day after it was everyone had gotten their packages. She's like, I want to tell you how much I loved how we broke. I'm like, don't. <laughs> She's like, what? I'm like, mom, there's it's it's just don't. I'm glad you like it. Thank you very much. Please let me tell you about your granddaughter. Just stop. <laughs> I'm glad my kid, my parents don't talk about my writing. It, it's like that feels about as creepy as catching them having sex. <laughs> I mean, in their eighties. Oh God. <laughs> See, and yours is more, and and you're a poet, Shane. So like, unless you're writing long, like epic poems, like your subtext is text itself. So yep. like I can bury neuroses about parenting in a short story that if you happen to miss it, who gives a fuck? The guy has a, he- a pumpkin for a head, you know. Right. Um, in <laughs> you don't have that kind of cover. So yeah, that's like watching your dad and mom do doggy style. Um, <laughs> exactly. Never gonna happen. <laughs> Shane, son, I want to tell you about this couplet you wrote I found was awkward, and that's like if your dad slapped your mom's ass and went, yeehaw. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't even know what to say. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, synopsize this conversation and respond to my father's email with that. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> how fucked up it is it's like no i'm not getting in that conversation actually well is there uh any other burning news you want to throw at us paul before i have to wrap this up and go cook um i you know i have stuff 
on the back burner for various things, but nothing I can uh, that's been signed yet. Um, something more might be happening with standalone, but not, I'm not sure what yet. Um, that's all I can really say. Um, off record, if you ask, I can tell you, but um, no, nothing really. I mean, I'm Shane. You and I are going to be TOC buddies apparently in Cairo Mad Five. That's right. Congratulations on that. Yeah. yeah. Same to you, good sir. Same to you. Um, kind of a bucket list Michael's item. My what? first My first book of yours was you and Michael Bailey. Or, well, not, well, Michael Bailey was the editor. Yeah. And it was kind of like, you know, I started interacting with you guys. It's like, these fuckers are really cool. So I was really happy when I found out that you were going to be in that kind of well, a. Well, was it Bones or was it one of the Chiral Mad anthologies? It could have been a Chiral Mad anthology. Because I. Well, Michael Bailey was someone I deliberately pursued. Like I was going to be in a, one of his books because he had done Chiral Mad 1. And then he was like, I'm going to do Chiral Mad 2. And so I was at this thing where I essentially had a lot of time on myself, but I was away from home. So I was like, fuck it, I'm going to write this story. I'm going to get into it because fuck it, I want to be in a Michael Bailey book. And it was um, in the nothing space, I am what you made me. And he loved it, but he was like, it's too sci-fi for Cairo Mad. So I, but I would like to hold on to it. I have an idea for something else, if you don't mind. And I was like, shit, yeah. Yeah. And then like a month later, he's like, I'm going to do the sci-fi horror anthology I would love to use in the nothing space. I was like, fuck yeah. And he hasn't been able to shake me loose since. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Because I'll reference a story. I'll write a story that I don't. I don't even think of for Michael and he'll be like, what do you got? Um, and I'll send it to him. He's like, this is exactly what I want. And I'm like, that what? Um, the agonizing guilt of relief last days of parent, last days of a ready made victim, which, um, people really seem to like that story. Um, I had written it initially as part of a frame story. There was a frame to it of dead children telling ghost stories. And I, I know, and I can still, and I can still in my head remember the original opening line. But when I wrote it, and I sent it to, my, I had my wife read it, and I had Damon Angelica Walters read it, and both of them, like to the word, were like, drop the frame and focus on the story, focus on the two brothers. I was like, I, all right. Um, but I remember I was talking about it on like Facebook because I wasn't, I don't even think I was on Twitter at that point yet. And Michael was like, send it to me. I was like, for what? And literally, I still have the email somewhere buried in one of my file folders that I organize my emails into because I'm a, an obsessive Virgo. Um, <laughs> literally, the title of the email was The Story That Is So Not Right for Cairo Mad 3. And he read it, and like, within 24 hours, he's like, no, this is what I want. I'm like, I don't – that's how the the story that's in Cairo Mad 5 happened. I was like – he's like, you got anything? I'm like, well, not really. I just wrote this one story called Feeling Like a Big Kid at the Beginning of the End. He's like, you and your fucking titles. Yeah. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I have nothing on Gary Braunbeck, thank you. Um, but I hope to one day. Um, yeah. I love Gary. Um, and it was the same premise, like – really all right i'm not gonna say no <laughs> but yeah you and i are gonna be toc buddies yeah and he did he approached me too and it was kind of like 
he's like, well, I want you some of your poetry, and I'm like, fuck you, do. You know, <laughs> you had kind of shown your chops with that uh, companion poetry to Carpenter's Farm. Yeah, that yeah. Was so like, and a lot of people kind of took notice of that with good reason. Um, so it's not surprising he reached out to you. Yeah, it was to me because you know, brand new and all that. Yeah. yeah, but you have a weird, you have an interesting way of getting into it. Like, for example. I know Michael Billy. I know Michael's a writer. He's a good writer. He's a solid writer, but he's predominantly known as being an editor. And some people use that as a means of breaking into the industry. They try other ways of breaking in to get notice of their own work. I'm not saying Michael did that, but that's. But most people know Michael first as an editor and then as a writer. Right. You have built quite a rep for yourself as a critic. You you're now saying so when you start putting something new out there, there are eyeballs on it. Yeah. So. You know, in that sense, you kind of give yourself a wider audience that maybe if you were just doing it on your fucking live journal 20 years ago, no one would fucking see. But you've proven yourself as (laughs) (laughs) you've proven yourself as a as a uh, a critic to pay attention to. So people are already looking in your direction. So when you throw them something a little new, something a little different, you're going to get some feedback. And it's worked out with good reason. Yeah, it is working out for me. I've been I've been very fortunate. Um, but I've got fortunate people helping me too and putting eyes on my stuff. I don't. It doesn't come out that way. It comes out looking like shit, and people read it and tell me what to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> Understandable. But then again, you know, we all have to have a safety. We all have to have a support system. Yes, yes, we do. Um, and not really, mostly not really. Uh, Laurel, <laughs> Laurel's kind of a slave driver, but I mean, I am. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's that you know. southern thing. She's like, fuck, <laughs> but, fuck, fuck hospitality, get to work, motherfucker. <laughs> See, but she didn't bother me at all when I was getting that story to you guys for that to run on Ink Heist. So <laughs> great story too, by the way. Everybody, go read that yeah. story. Inkheist.com. So, yes, if you, right. uh, yeah, I'll even do a bumper for it. If you would like to see a companion piece of the novel novella standalone, please check out Everything Feels Wrong Without You, currently on inkheist.com. Right, and thank you for being gentle on us with that title. It is the web, after all. Yeah, <laughs> actually, um, that one has gone through a few titles. I'm I, I'm a writer that if I have to really feel comfortable, I have to have like a title in place. But periodically, after I've written a story and I've kind of looked at it and it's mellowed a little bit, a better title will come up. Most titles kind of stay in the same place, like, you know, In the Nothing Space came before the story. All That You Leave Behind came before the story. Bones Made to Be Broken definitely came before the story. Um, Just titles I've had in my head. And originally, this title of that story was um, A Collapsing Life But With Free Rentals Um, because it was very movie-based. Um, and I, and I liked it, but it felt, it didn't feel as active as my other titles. So, and I just liked the vaguely obsessive quality of everything feels wrong without you. Like it, it feels like the title of an eighties, like torch song. Yeah. Yeah. But and it's I also, like that quality. It's kind of, your titles are kind of like moving parts of the story in a way themselves. A lot of them are. I rem- that's a self-consciousness on my part, uh, a little bit, because 
I'm a, okay. For example, on YouTube, I love watching um, Cinema Sins, and it's obsessively nitpicky, like to the point that even sometimes I'm kind of going, Jesus Christ, guys! But I know they're doing it for the joke. And there's a point in most movies where they'll reference the title, and the narration will go, "Roll credits," and so I always kind of am vaguely aware that like I want the title to feel like a part of the story and not like something I literally pulled out of the story. I mean, that's fine. Yeah. But I want it to feel kind of like its own thing, but also still be very connected to the actual plot. So I don't want to have a roll credits moment in the story. Um, so I try to avoid that. Yeah. Sometimes, though, it leads down very long path- passageways. Like, I don't think I'll ever write a story quite like with the title in the um, the agonizing guilt of relief, last days of re- that's just all. That's just a yeah. mouthful. <laughs> I a, usually just co- it's cut a it down flash to agonizing fiction guilt. Piece. <laughs> Paul, Paul writes flash fiction pieces for his titles. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. Michael Bailey, to this day, it, and he's been doing it for years now. If he's not busting my balls about my titles, he's busting my balls about the fact that a lot of my stories involve bridges um, in some form or another. <laughs> Just because they show up in my stories. I don't know why. Um, and he, in the past like two or three years, he started busting my chops about how he wants me to write a 5,000-word title with a five-word story. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> and I'm just an asshole to try to figure out how to do that, just to send him and go, fuck you. <laughs> right. Like, I'll literally send the email title, fuck you, and then it'll have an attachment, and it'll be that. <laughs> Next thing you know, he'll be inviting you to written backwards the anthology. Yeah. And all the stories in it will be 5,000 word titles with three word stories. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be like the title of that one Fiona Apple album. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, so I'm afraid I'm, a, I'm drawing a blank on that. It came out in like 2000, 2001. It was like when the pawns. It's yeah. usually sort of just when the pawns. Yeah, it's like a I I don't know the whole thing, but it's supposed to be like a poem or something yeah. as the title. Sadly, I don't care enough to look it up or. Pre- <laughs> oh God, I just did. It is really long. I'm not gonna. I'm literally <laughs> looking it up right now. <laughs> I'm sorry, yeah. that's a poem. It's honestly not very good. Anyway. Okay. <laughs> God damn it! Now I have to look. <laughs> when the holy shit, this thing is long. When the pawn hits the conflicts, he thinks like a king. When what he knows throws the blows. When he goes to the fight, and he'll win the whole thing. Oh Jesus Christ, I'm not reading all that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm looking at it now. Um, it has a very sing-song quality to it. It came out in '99. Jesus, I'm old. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, you're really fucking old, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> on that note I am going to cut you off and get myself out of here before somebody cuts me off <laughs> fair enough well, uh, it has been a blast very much. Yes. yeah sorry go ahead <laughs> no go ahead Paul. 
That's the first time I stepped on you the whole podcast. I know. We're we're slacking. But yeah, (laughs) it was awesome to have you on. Thank you very much. Um, Fucking love standalone. And uh, listeners, pre-order it. Get those awesome trading cards because it kicks ass. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you so much, guys, for having me on. This was was fun. It It, it was was fun. This is it's like for me it's 10:45 here on the East Coast and I'm like I I'm old I need to go to bed. Um, <laughs> same boat. <laughs> so like but uh, you know this is a blast. Thank you again very much for having me on. Uh, thanks. Anytime. We'll have you on again as soon as possible. Awesome guys. All thank right. you. Thank you. Peace. Thank you. Have a good peace, night. Peace. You have too. <laughs> Is somebody going to hang the fucking thing?